According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are here for the purpose of growth. Once again, join me in your Bibles. John chapter 10. The Gospel of John chapter 10. You'll find John in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How the New Testament gets started there. Chapter 10. Last week we wrapped up episode 18 and we're ready now to uh, deal with episode 19. A pretty short lesson and yet it does involve some review because it goes back to some earlier days with respect to the ministry of John the Baptist. We read, uh, and this is as a follow-up to really the uh, bulk of the chapter, as we've been studying the Feast of Dedication that begins in verse 22, which uh, today is known as Hanukkah to the Jewish people, their uh, celebration in uh, the month of Chislev, what we call December, uh, the Feast of Hanukkah there uh, in verses 22 through 39. And when we left off, uh, they were trying to kill Jesus again. Thank you. And, um, of course, they're not allowed to because it's not the Father's plan for Jesus to die at Hanukkah. There's no uh, fulfillment in that. There's no eternal purpose in that. Jesus is the Lamb of God. And the time in which the redemption lamb was to be sacrificed is known as Passover. And yet we recognize the hostility is growing and we are approaching the cross. We are approaching Passover. In fact, this is the winter, just four months shy of the cross. Jesus will die on the cross on Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. And so we're getting very close to that when we are in a chapter like John chapter 10. Well, you see the hostility here uh, as it comes to a close. They wanted him dead in verse 31, and then he taught them a little bit more, and they want him dead still uh, in verse 39. And so they were seeking again to seize him, and he eluded their grasp. And that leads us to today's study, episode 19 in your Harmony of the Gospels. Episode 19 in the last Judean and Prean ministry, and this uh, refers to his withdrawal beyond the Jordan. When he crosses the Jordan River, he actually reaches the territory called Perea, and that's uh, today known as Jordan, or uh, the, the Kingdom of Jordan in the Middle East today. And as verses 40 through 42, pretty short narrative, he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. And if he thought it was a getaway or a, a private time of uh, seclusion, uh, he's mistaken, because there's a whole crowd there waiting for him, uh, those that had responded years ago to the Baptist ministry, and uh, they're excited to see Jesus returning to their, uh, to their neck of the woods, you might say. Uh, so, verse 41, many came to him and were saying, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So this concludes the episode, also brings the 10th chapter of John's Gospel to a close. All right, so that's where we're going to be today. It shouldn't take a whole lot of time, and yet uh, when we do start reviewing everything John said about this man, uh, that might take us just a little bit to refresh our memories about that ministry and what it was uh, communicating. So we'll have it here for us today. Before we do any of that, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Make sure that each one of us is filled with the Spirit, humble under the authority of God's Word. Shall we pray?
Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word and the privilege it is for us to assemble on this day. It's a grace provision. The freedom our nation has is because of Your grace. The uh, use of this building is because of Your grace. Uh, the, the arrangement of our time each week, Father, is, is because of Your grace. And I thank You this morning that Your grace once again is magnified and, and sufficient, Father, for, uh, for us to come together and to uh, study the living and abiding Word of God. We do ask for Your hand of protection. Father, hedge us about against those that might want to come in here and disrupt our proceedings or bring us to some harm. Father, uh, we anticipate an increase in difficult days ahead. Because your scripture promises difficult days ahead. So, Father, uh, make use of today to glorify your Son and guide us in the truth. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We're going to give you a total of three observations out of this text. First of all, the geography. Beyond the Jordan. Beyond the Jordan is the region of Perea. That's why this uh, section or this segment of the Life of Christ ministry is called the last Judean and Perean ministry of Jesus. Uh, we've recently concluded the entirety of the Galilean ministry, which is up to the northern regions. Uh, now he's back south again and then crossing the Jordan River to the east so as to um, have some ministry in the Perean region of uh, of uh, Israel. Interesting, if you ever do the, the geography on that, on the eastern uh, shore is where uh, Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh chose to settle rather than uh, cross the Jordan. And they were given a region over there called Gilead at that time. And it was a part of uh, Israel for many, many years. Uh, at this point, it's primarily Gentile. There are some Jewish population centers uh, kind of mixed in with some Greek population population centers, the region of Decapolis and some of the other territories that are there. There's more to do on that, but I think we'll let it go. The, the language, the expression is kind of interesting, too, because the phrase comes up beyond the Jordan in a number of different contexts. And it, it, it's kind of funny because it depends on who's speaking and from what point of reference they're talking about, because quite often it's actually from the perspective of Babylon. And the idea of beyond the Jordan, then, is the western shore <laughs> as being beyond the Jordan. Well, from the standpoint of Babylon, it is. It just depends on which side of the river you're talking about when you talk about across the river, right? That's all a matter of perspective. I used to live in South Austin. We have the same thing here in uh, Austin. You're either north of the river or south of the river. And, you know, you kind of view the folks across the river as not exactly being, you know, compatible with your neighborhood kind of thing. And I understand that. I used to live down there. Well, Beyond the Jordan, beyond the Jordan, the region of Perea. And so this is what's really sparked a lot of archaeological controversy because uh, there are a number of sites to try to locate uh, this particular locality. And uh, not only that, but there's a Bethany uh, on both shores and trying to relate which Bethany is which and, uh, and so forth is kind of interesting. We won't go into any of that today. However, if you do hold your finger here and glance back to John chapter 1, you'll note that this is the first region in which John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, was uh, ministering and when he announced the coming Christ. John chapter 1 and verse 28. These things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. And the uh, archaeological disputes that still thrive to this day trying to pinpoint the location for Bethany beyond the Jordan. And uh, there's a school of thought that's trying to identify it with the very same Bethany that's fairly adjacent to Jerusalem 
uh, where Mary and Martha and Lazarus, where they lived and, and things that happened there. Uh, I don't accept any of that. I think it is a Transjordan Eastern Shore uh, area uh, for a lot of different reasons, uh, primarily because this is the location of Elijah's ministry where Elijah ascended in the fiery chariot and John the Baptist came in the uh, fulfillment of the Elijah expectations. And I, I do believe that he was on the eastern shore more than the western shore of the Jordan River. Well, that's uh, that's what it is there. Now, this is a very short episode, and yet it presents a contrast. This short episode presents a very sharp contrast with what we've been studying the last three or four weeks now. The material back in these earlier verses from 22 through 39 between the Judeans, uh, called more frequently here the Jews, all throughout... Um, these verses, you notice verse 24, the Jews then gathered around him and the Jews uh, picked up stones to stone him. And all the references to the Jews here, you want to maybe if it helps in your thinking, go ahead and rename all those the Judeans, meaning the uh, the Jewish people that occupied Jerusalem, the hill country of Judah. They were the most religious, the most devout, the ones that were uh, whose whole life centered on the temple centered on the religious system of Mosaic law observance. Uh, the other Jews in the Prean region, the Galilean region, they were considered, uh, you know, second class citizens as far as that goes. They weren't as connected as the Judeans because the Judeans were obviously right there in God's holy city serving in the temple and all the things associated with that. And yet notice this contrast. They looked down their noses at the Galileans, for example. And what was Jesus and his disciples? Most of them were Galileans. Or they looked down their noses at the Pereans, for example. And look what this passage describes. These Pereans are excited. They're positive to doctrine. They're excited about Bible teaching. They're, they're thrilled as anything that Jesus is back in their region again. See, and there's the contrast. Now, the Judeans would not believe either the message or the miracles. And we dealt, we dealt with that at some length in the last couple of sessions. The Judeans would not believe either the message or the miracles. Backing up to verses 25 and 26, as Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. So there's the message. No faith. Not responding to the message with faith. And then he goes on to say, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe. So neither the message nor the miracles. And this, uh, you know, is not a surprise when uh, the foolish heart is darkened, when the uh, uh, the uh, brood of vipers or the uh, sons of the adversary are locked into their systems of pride. Of course, they're not going to respond to truth. They're not of the truth. And that's what he goes on to say at the end of verse 26. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. See, the sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. Jesus' sheep know his voice and he knows them. I mean, there's a lot of information there. And, and by the way, if you've been a part of our um, Sunday night ministry workshop, then this is much of what goes into the elements of the God of this age who blinds the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, contrast that with these Pereans because these Pereans didn't even see miracles. The Pereans believed the message despite the noted lack of miracles. They were very much aware of the fact that John the Baptist was a non-miracle prophet. A non-miracle prophet. 
And that's significant, very significant. The Preans believed the message despite the noted lack of miracles. Now, the, uh, the reality of John the Baptist, and, and what a, a fascinating study. Jesus himself testified that he was the greatest believer uh, in human history up to that point of time. Because he said, of those born among women, there has arisen none greater than John the Baptist. I, I view that, the more I go back to that statement and reflect on it, the more I'm, uh, I'm just overwhelmed. And what a testimony that is. I mean, compared to... The, the, the great heroes of the Old Testament of Noah, Daniel, and Job, and they get, they get kind of spotlighted in, in a passage there in Ezekiel as if they were the three greatest Old Testament saints. And yet Jesus outstrips all three of them when he says John the Baptist is the greatest of those born among women. That's an extraordinary testimony right there. And then he goes on to say, yet the, le- the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. And that grabs your attention as well. And yet... The, um, the greatness of John the Baptist had nothing to do with any miracles. The greatest prophet ever until Jesus, and he did no miracles. And understand that miracles were expected. If, if a prophet wasn't doing any miracles, you should go ahead and just ignore him because he wasn't coming from God. Jesus told these guys that, you know, if I'm not doing the miracles, then don't believe me. But if I'm doing miracles, if I'm demonstrating that God has sent me, then you better pay attention. That was his message to the, uh, to the Judeans in uh, these earlier verses here, 22 through 39. And yet here's John the Baptist in his day, no miracles whatsoever, none. So why should anybody listen to him? Say, because unlike Moses and Samuel and, and uh, Elijah and Elisha and Isaiah and Jeremiah and the, the twelve, you know, from Hosea to Malachi, unlike all of those prophets who spoke of things coming in subsequent centuries or even millennia, all right? Miracles were designed there to provide the credentials, to provide the reliability of what they said. John the Baptist wasn't predicting anything that was happening centuries after him. John the Baptist was the herald and he said, here he is, right? He didn't say, you know, someday a virgin's going to have a baby, you know, a prophet like Isaiah who talks about pregnant virgins, yeah, he better have some miracles, <laughs> right? i got to have some kind of evidence to find out this guy's real because I'm not believing something about pregnant virgins. That's, that's not possible. Then I start seeing miracles and say, wait a minute. All right, miracles are only possible if God's providing them, so maybe this message is true. You understand what I'm saying? These Old Testament prophets required the miracles as the validation of their authenticity. They were their credentials. Like a police officer showing his his badge or his ID. They're the credentials of a prophet. Well, the unique nature of John the Baptist is he gets to be the, uh, the greatest. The last shall be first. The first shall be last. Here's the last of the Old Testament prophets announcing the coming of Christ, and boom, there he is, see. And it's just a, a beautiful thing, you know. I don't know, I, for years I've always pondered the, you know, the old Ed McMahon, here's Johnny, kind of, you know. Well, that's what John the Baptist got to do with, here's Jesus, right? Here he is. And the Spirit op- comes down like a dove and, and just amazing. And these guys understood that. The Pereans understood that. There were no miracles, while John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. 
didn't need the signs because they were watching the fulfillment of everything happening right then, right there with the immediate prophetic fulfillment. So many believed in him there. There's a statement that comes up later, actually towards the end of Jesus' ministry here, chapter 20, verse 29, it actually highlights how blessed they are because of this. John 20, 29 And this is where uh, Doubting Thomas finally comes face to face with the resurrected Jesus. And uh, he, for whatever reason, we don't know why Thomas was not present the night before or the week before. Um, Jesus appears and ten disciples are there because Judas is dead and Thomas, whatever. I mean, maybe he had to work. I don't know what he was doing, but he was gone. He comes back the following week and... uh, after having said, well, I'm, I refuse to believe it until I can stick my fingers in the in the uh, the place of the nails there. Well, so then the following week, he appears again after eight days. Thomas is there this time. And he tells Thomas, he says, reach right here with your finger and see my hands and reach your hand here. And put it into my side and do not be unbelieving, but believing. Man, we're going to spend some time on that. You know, we're going to spend some time on that when we get that far, because this has nothing to do with receiving eternal life and a salvation status of, of, uh, of Thomas. Thomas is already saved. He's been saved. But he's having a faith crisis where he stops walking by faith and he starts to operate in an unbelieving mode. And uh, we understand that. And uh, we need to guard against that. So Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, this is where I'm headed, verse 29, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. That gets you into the purpose statement for John, and we're going to spend some time on that too. Now, back then to chapter 10. These Pereans were uh, believing without the uh, assistance of any miracles. They uh, didn't require the miracles. They had positive volition to the message. They were hungry for the message. And they were amazed to see things fulfilling in their day. They were amazed to see uh, that, and to identify their um, status, their generation, as being the ones to behold the unveiling of the Messiah. Can you imagine? Generations ever since Cain and Abel have come to the world wondering if they were the generation that was going to see the seed of the woman promise fulfilled from Genesis 3.15. And uh, uh, generations since uh, Isaiah have been wondering, are they the generation that's going to see the virgin conceive and bear a son? And so they, here they see it in their day. It's an exciting thing. I think we're unique in our generation. We've seen the, the reconstitution of the nation of Israel, for example, in our lifetime. Well... Some of your lifetimes. Never mind. But the, <laughs> the uh, conditions of where we are, the global communication, where it is today, unlike it's ever been before. And we see the table is set. We see uh, it's always been a principle of imminency, but it is imminent beyond anything that's ever been feasible prior to our own day and age. And we have to wonder, how close are we? We ought to have a sense of amazement, uh, even as these Pereans did, that, that we are the generation that's seeing these things unfold. Thirdly, everything John said about Jesus was true. 
Everything John said about Jesus was true. And so many believed in him there. So what was it that John was saying about Jesus? Recognize that in particular, this record, this gospel record. See, I knew I should have stopped a verse too short. Back to chapter 20. When you got the purpose clause of the statement. John chapter 20. Identify this here. John 20, 30 and 31. I was just there a moment ago and I had stopped reading a verse too early. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. The Gospel of John is the fourth and final of the written Gospels. And it is the most unique. Matthew, Mark, and Luke we call the synoptic Gospels because they're largely synonymous. They're largely synchronized with the same uh, optic, the same view of Jesus Christ. All right, We call them synoptic. And they teach many of the same stories, many of the same miracles, many of the same events. If we didn't have the Gospel of John, we wouldn't know the ministry of Christ was any longer than about a year, year, maybe a year and a half. We wouldn't know anything. But the Gospel of John gives us a greater sequence of the ministry and specific miracles. Not all the miracles. You know, some number up to 40 and, and different miracles that Jesus did. But John is very clear. John only records a finite number, a very limited number of miracles. And he does so for an evangelistic purpose. So many other signs. And of course, uh, the word other there gets overlooked a lot. And in this chapter, I think, records the cross and resurrection as the greatest of the signs of Jesus Christ. But many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written. In other words, this is a purpose clause for the gospel itself. And specifically why these miracles were included. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's the purpose clause for the book. That the record of this gospel, from the messages given to the miracles performed, this gospel is uh, an evangelism tract. It is a device by which you and I can lead unbelievers to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. You can walk them through the Gospel of John and highlight how Jesus And only Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. The only one qualified, the only one who has done what the Father viewed as necessary for the redemption of humanity. And that believing, you may have life in His name. Alright, so everything John said, it becomes important. It becomes a pattern for us to use. And it can become, the messages of John the Baptist can become for us a uh, an outline for witnessing, for gospel presentation, so far as it reveals Jesus as the Christ. So what was it that uh, John said about Jesus? Well, we got a couple of things back in chapter 1 and John chapter 3. So back up to chapter 1 then. And we'll pick up, we're not going to pick up as early as we could. Verse 6 is his introduction, making it clear that he was a, uh, a revealer. He was not the Christ, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness concerning the light. 
our role is very similar. Uh, we are not the light, but we are lights. We are children of light. And there is a, an aspect of this that's even more true for us than it was for John. But if we pick up with verse 27 then, as the Pharisees are grilling him to find out who are you, He says in verse 26, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. Now, they sent these agents out, these minions, to grill John about who he was. And it's interesting because he didn't feel compelled to go along with, you know, with their priorities. <laughs> right? He wasn't overly worked up about uh, assisting them in their assignment. I think it's because he was so focused on fulfilling his own assignment. He said, I'm not here to talk about myself. Who am I? I'm the one that's pointing to someone even greater. I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So let's start there. The very first thing John ever says about Christ speaks to his glory, speaks to his eternal worthiness and our unworthiness. First thing John says about Jesus is that he's not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. See, if you want to update that to a, a modern idiom, you know, just fill in the blank. Make up one of your own. How about that? You know, not worthy to floss his teeth. Not, you know, not worthy to whatever. Just anything. Put it in perspective. He is God in the flesh. He is the eternal creator and if, if uh, Moses should take off his shoes to approach the burning bush on holy ground, what ought our reaction be in approaching the God of the universe? Say, we have no right to be there. And yet, he makes us worthy. Through him, we have confidence to approach the throne of grace. Through him, we draw nigh. We are made righteous. It's an amazing thing. But we want to start there. The very first thing that John ever taught about Jesus is his glory. His preeminence, how it is that that um, we have no right to even approach him. This is exactly what Proverbs is talking about. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You start with the reverence for who God is or you're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to get anywhere. I think that's a big feature in our time of silent prayer. You may come in here and, and OK, you're not carnal. Great. You know, bow your head anyway. Take a moment anyway to humble yourself. Acknowledge the fact that you and I are human creatures being invited into the presence of the Creator that He might share His mind and His purpose and His teaching. How do we have any right to any of that? Why are we, uh, man, why are we still here? You know, I feel like, you know, if anyone approached the Shekinah glory, he'd be incinerated. Can you imagine? Other than the high priest on that one day a year, if you had the right sacrifices made, the right bloodshed, the right sprinkled on the on the veil, then he could enter within the veil. You understand why they tied a rope around his ankle, right? Because <laughs> if if he did something wrong while he was in there, then they had to uh, drag the corpse out, right? I mean, goodness. And here we are, approaching something more, far more intimate than the Shekinah glory, because we're already in Christ. Can you imagine? 
Maybe we lose sight of our focus. We lose sight of the fear of the Lord because we're so over-familiar with our intimacy in Christ. But it's good to review it from time to time, as John does here. Not worthy to untie the sandal. Secondly, he is the Lamb of God who takes away, singular, the sin, singular, of the cosmos. He is the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Not the Lion. That's also true, but that's not what's stressed here. If you're focused on conquest or glory, if you're focused on uh, the, the, the Lion who's going to conquer, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, if you're focused on the coming kingdom and uh, ruling this, this uh, place and all of that, well, you're putting the cart before the horse. You're putting the crown before the cross. The cross comes first. The Lamb of God comes first. It's not the lion who takes the book and opens the seals. It's the lamb standing as if having been slain who is worthy to take the book and open the seals. So important. The lamb is the Savior. We can't lose that. It's got to be the first title. He is the lamb. And our first focus in terms of uh, our evangelism endeavors for this lost and dying world. Particularly if they're sucked up into this pluralism and all the multiculturalism and all of the, the, the lies of, of uh, moral relativity and everything else. They think, oh, there's all kinds of paths, all kinds of good religions out there. There's different belief systems that will help you be a better person. Oh, great. Yeah, you'll be a better person who dies and goes to hell. All kinds of good people in hell. How about if we introduce you to the Lamb of God? Because that's the, the, the center issue in, in our evangelism. Who takes away sin. We stress this so much. No Old Testament sacrifice ever took away sin. All it did was cover. Atonement is cover. Kafar is cover. The, uh, when sin was atoned for, when sin was covered, then the angel of wrath could pass over Big difference between passing over and removing the sin eternally. That's why Old Testament saints who were saved by grace through faith died and they didn't go to heaven. They didn't go to hell either. They went to Abraham's bosom. They had a special compartment across the gulf, this vast gulf between torments and paradise. But they could not be in God's presence because their sin had not been removed until the Lamb of God removes the sin of the world. So important. Sin singular. Well, so which sin is that talking about? Right? You know, I start thinking, hmm, I've done hundreds of sins, thousands of sins. I've had some great big whopping sins. I wonder, was this one of those? Which sin did he take away? The sin of the world. The sin. The state of sin. Adam's original sin, the fallen nature we have in Adam, it's the wages of sin, singular, which is death. Not the wages of sins, plural, which you do all the time. You're not dead in Adam on the road to hell because of the sins you've done. You're dead in Adam on the road to hell because of the sin you're born into, the estate of sin, the sin singular, the sin of the cosmos, the sin that Jesus Christ removed. A lot of information there. Anyway, it's brought up in verse 29. It's also restated in verse 36. Behold the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Thirdly, that He's preeminent in time and glory. 
Third thing he says about Jesus. First of all, he says, I'm not worthy to untie a sandal. Secondly, he says, uh, he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thirdly, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. His coming followed my coming, but his existence preceded my existence. Because his existence precedes all of us. His existence precedes all of us. Preeminent in time and glory. Yes, he's a man, but he's the God-man. He's God who became a man. And in terms of his virgin birth in 4 B.C. or 7 B.C., I think 7 is a pretty accurate number, uh, in terms of... uh, uh, simply because you know Herod dies in 4 BC, and there were, you needed some time in there for Herod to order the death of two-year-old baby boys and things like that. So I think seven is a is a uh, good number BC for the birth of Christ. And yet his humanity precedes seven BC, and obviously his deity precedes seven BC in terms of his eternal. Uh, relationship with the Father. Again, John 1, one. in the beginning was the Word. That's why he precedes John the Baptist. <laughs> precedes all of us as far as that goes. Preeminent in time and glory. See, if, and I hope you include this in your evangelism, if folks ask you, well, what's so special about Jesus? You know, why should they listen to what Jesus says and, and not listen to what Confucius says or Buddha or anybody else? <laughs> well, because Buddha is not God in the flesh. Muhammad is not God in the flesh. Confucius is not the eternal God, the Son, who emptied himself and took upon the likeness of man so as to die on the cross and redeem us and reconcile us to a right relationship with God the Father. His message isn't a human message of wisdom. It's God's message. God's message. Preeminent in time and glory. Identified by the dove descending at his baptism. John 1, 31 through 33. And this is interesting, too. I'm really hoping this, you know, Hollywood's done some things on this with different movies and things. I don't think uh, it, it can match the original, though. That's why I hope to see this when we get to heaven. I mean, I'm really hoping that much of the Bible is going to be replayed for us in, uh, in kind of a live action, uh, watch it unfold kind of a thing. All right. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Understand, this uh, we don't know what the length of time was that the Baptist was ministering. We do know it was fairly long because word got around and all of Jerusalem was going out to this to see to the river and and hearing this prophet and hearing his message and they were all excited about what this ministry might uh, entail. And you can imagine disciple after disciple after disciple and and John is saying, you know, one of these coming up is going to be the Christ. He's going to be the one that the Holy Spirit descends on as a dove. And so here comes Peter, and here comes John, and Andrew, and James, and these guys, and and everyone that's being baptized, coming up out of the water. Oh, no dove. <laughs> no Holy Spirit. All right, next, next, next. 
until the day Jesus comes. Until the day Jesus comes. And then the heavens open and the voice out of the heavens, Behold, my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit descends as a dove. So that the, the, the greatest prophet who did no miracles yet said, The dove is going to descend and then it happens. How about that? Is there any question as to who the Christ is? <laughs> it should be open. That's why these Judaizers are saying, Oh, oh, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Where have you been the last three and a half years? All right. He's been announcing it since that day at his baptism. That day when the fallen angels were put on notice. See, that is um, another glorious thing. I think of the whole childhood of Jesus Christ is how the Father allowed him to grow up in anonymity. That the devil did not know whether the, the Bethlehem massacre was uh, effective or not. You know, they murdered all those Bethlehem babies and then what? Nothing. No ideas. Had no clue that Mary and Joseph had escaped off to Egypt and come back and grew up in a little rinky-dink, no-account town like Nazareth in Galilee. Whoever would have imagined. So for 30 years plus, maybe even closer to 35 or 36 years, um, the adversary has no idea. Until this hairy guy with a robe and funny diet starts baptizing people there. And then, yeah, you, know, you want to know why the Pharisees are so curious? Because the demons that empower them are the ones that are really curious. Okay? That's why they have no rest. That's why they're in turmoil. And then Jesus comes and the, spirit, uh, the heavens open, the, the dove descends, the voice declares, and Satan and all his minions are... I wonder what, what, what they're saying, right? Like, oh no. And is it any wonder then that the moment the baptism's complete, what happens? The devil drags him out into the wilderness and tempts him for 40 days. I mean, first order of business. Oh, you're the Christ, huh? First order of business. Amazing thing. Well, this is review tonight, but, or this morning, but there it is. Fifth thing he tells about Jesus. Son of God. The Son of God. Just in case uh, Hamashiach, the Messiah, is not clear, or just in case uh, the, the Christos, the expected anointed one, is not clear, Lamb of God, uh, existed before I, here's plain language, even more clear, Son of God. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the one and only Son of God. The Son, capital T, capital S. The Son of of God. Now, of course, uh, there were other created beings. There were created beings, angelic realm, called sons of God, a division of angels called sons of God. And yet they were subservient to the Son. Do homage to the Son, Psalm chapter 2 says. So the Son of God. And this is what forms the core the Son of God there. And it's interesting, when they came and they quizzed Him, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? They didn't ask, are you the Son of God? And I think it shows a deficiency in their um, Christology, their Messiology, what they were anticipating when it comes to the coming Messiah. Yet they should have known, they could have known. Many of them did know. 
the Son of God. Again, if you're giving the gospel and you fail to highlight the fact that Jesus is not just some human good human being, a fine moral teacher, an example, uh, you're, you're not doing them any favors, let me put it that way. You should let them know it's God in the flesh. Because, see, if you're not declaring Jesus as being God himself, then you're um, ineffectively communicating the truth. I hope you understand that. I, I don't think I understood it when I was saved, but that's, that's another story. You can relax there, of course. <laughs> the Holy Spirit can take the worst gospel message in the universe and, and still bring about conviction and drawing and, and faith in Christ. So we, we, uh, we're okay on that. Because um, ultimately, what happens if you don't make it clear that God is doing what man could not do? Yeah, if you're then at least opening the thought that, well, Jesus was a good guy, an okay guy. He seemed to earn it. He seemed to work it. He seemed to do all right. Maybe others can too. Maybe I can too. Maybe if I'm a good person, uh, I'll be acceptable kind of a thing. No, you've got to make it very clear. Man could not, so God came as a man to do what man could not do apart from God. See, minus that... If Jesus is just a, a guy, a man, a normal, you know, a human being, not God, then uh, it's, a, it's a flawed gospel message at that point. You want to make it clear. God in the flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God became a man. See? And as I mentioned just a moment ago, I, I'm pretty sure I did not understand that at the moment of my salvation. My memories back then are still a bit fuzzy. and I've actually blocked out much of my childhood. It's kind of sad. But, from what I do recall, I seem to have some early Sunday school memories. And, and to me, it's so vivid, it has to be true memory anyway. But I seem to recall being a little kindergarten kid and my Sunday school teacher telling me about how Jesus was God and, and became a man. And I remember getting upset and saying, that's not right, that's not right, Jesus isn't God. And then uh, going home and telling my parents that the Sunday school teachers were teaching something crazy. And then uh, my parents saying, no, that's true. Jesus is God. I was kind of shocked. Really? How's that happen? All right. Here's a couple of Ph.D. types with books they've written that would say that, well, I was never saved in the first place then. I couldn't have been saved if I didn't know that Jesus was God kind of a thing. So anyway, they might doubt my salvation at that point, but I, I don't. All right. What else does he say? Well, the message regarding John's person, I'm sorry, Jesus' person, sets the table for John's message regarding Jesus' work. You know, if all you do is walk him through chapter 1, that's great for setting the table. But follow it up with chapter 3. Okay, There's only a glimmer about the work when you talk about the Lamb of God taking away the sin of the world. Well, how did he do that? That's chapter 3. That's dying on the cross. That's being born again. That's what gets brought up in, in John chapter 3, verses 25 through 36. So the chapter 1 message is a wonderful message because it reveals the person of Christ. But in your witnessing, you want to be declaring the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that as uh, this unbeliever 
is being drawn by the Father, convicted by the Holy Spirit, and having the gospel, the good news of salvation offered to them, they can reply on a faith basis, understanding both the person and work of Jesus Christ. So in other words, John 1 sets the table for John 3. And the message of John the baptizer, you put them together, I think you got a pretty good outline for uh, your role as a minister of reconciliation. John chapter 3, verses 25, really to the end of the chapter. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. Who were John's disciples? Most of them were Jews, racially Jewish. But here again, we see the distinction between the non-Judean, non-Jerusalem resident Jews with uh, the term Judaios. That's important to identify here in this gospel. Well, John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, whom you uh, have testified, behold, he is baptizing and all are coming to him. His, his ministry is growing and you're, you're losing a few folks here. You don't have the, the attendance you used to have in some of your, you know, the glory days. You say, man, the parking lot's a little sparse. The seating's a little sparse. We even took a few extra rows out the back and spread the seats around a little bit more so the room wouldn't look quite so empty. All the little gimmicks of what churches do and different things, right? And uh, the Baptist is, I don't see a problem with this. <laughs> you know, what's wrong with that? It's the way it should be. Yeah, and you wonder, why does the Baptist even have disciples anymore at this point? When James and John and and Peter and Andrew and these guys all left the Baptist to go follow after Christ? Well, of course. Absolutely. You know, I fully expect after the the, the rapture and the trumpet sounds and we launch up into the air, you guys are going to quit coming to Pastor Bob for Bible teaching. I've got to tell you, I don't expect anyone here to be that thick. By the time you get to glory, you're going to have better teaching options. You're going to have Jesus right there. May have to. <laughs> can't even imagine. I'll be too busy in my own Bible study, learning from Jesus. So why does John even have disciples anymore? It makes you wonder. And some, uh, you know, Paul and some of these guys get over to Ephesus, and John the Baptist still has disciples. Thirty years later, like, man, what's really going on? So, uh, Rabbi, he's got this thriving ministry going. So John answered and said, a man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. He's not worried about it. He's not jealous. If if Jesus has what he has, that's great. The Father gave it to him. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him, the forerunner. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and uh, hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice, so this joy of mine has been made full. You know, what a great metaphor. What a wonderful picture to tell the story. He's not the bridegroom. He's the friend of the bridegroom. All right? And so the joy belongs to the friend of the bridegroom only up to a certain point, at which time the bridegroom, (laughs) you might say, When the wedding's over, the bridegroom is the one that takes the bride, not the friend of the bridegroom. 
let's not confuse who the real issue is about. And why, too, by the way, I think um, a lot of the modern idea of weddings that focus so much on the bride are also missing the point. And, yeah, I mean, she's the pretty one with a nice dress and all that, but the Bible is portraying the groom being the person of Jesus Christ and the one that should be the celebrity as far as that goes. I'm not going to overturn 20 centuries of wedding traditions in, in one generation, but I'm still going to comment on it every chance I get. <laughs> All right? He must increase, but I must decrease. Man, I love that. I think even if we didn't have Jesus telling us that he was the greatest, most mature believer of the Old Testament, that verse right there would have told us that John was the most mature believer of the Old Testament. A recognition that his ministry is going to get smaller? Well, that can't be right. That offends my 21st century American sensibilities of what uh, you know a purpose-driven, thriving, prosperity uh, ministry is all about. We need to have more people. You mean we're going to have fewer people next year than this year? Well, that's not right. Well, maybe it is. Maybe it is right. Whether it's more, whether it's less. God's in charge of all that i got a pastor friend of mine right now that's praying about it. Just lost a family. They've really diminished in size, and they're evaluating. Are we still a lampstand? Is, is the door here being shut? Is the door still open? And if the door is still open, then there's still work to do, whether you know it's a larger work or a smaller work or whatever it is. That's, that's Christ's business. He's the head of the church. And so, uh, verse 31 then here in John 3, He who comes from above is above all. Again, he's precedes, preeminent in glory. He's from heaven, has been with the Father from all eternity past, uh, humbled himself to be born of the Virgin and come into this earth and live an earthly life. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. I mean, the greatest witness of all. Every other evangelist is talking about a place they haven't been to yet, <laughs> right? When you lead somebody to Christ and tell them about heaven, you haven't been there. What are you telling them about? And yet, where was Jesus from? Where was his message from? The origin of his being, the origin of his message. And um, what a blessing. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's why I say this is the gospel message that you want to be giving. This is the, the, uh, the, the truth you want to be communicating with respect to the work of Jesus Christ. But he who does not obey the Son. You see the contrast between believing and obeying in verse 36? It doesn't say he who does not believe. It says he who does not obey. Because believing is in itself obedience. God wants none to perish. And so believing is in fact an act of obedience in the sense that uh, this, as he says in a couple other chapters here uh, later on, that this is the work of God, that you believe in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. And so faith is obedience to the plan of God. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. 
Understand the default position for humanity is dead. If you carefully observe the verb tenses there in verse 36. He who believes in the Son has, present tense, continuous action, right here, right now, already has eternal life. If you are a believer today, this morning, right now, you have eternally, ongoing possession, eternal life. It's not something future that you're going to receive someday. You're not going to get it when you die and go to heaven. You have it now. All right, Your body might die, but you can't die. You have eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. So he doesn't have it now, and he'll never see it. But what is his default position? His present ongoing abiding possession is wrath. The wrath of God abides already right now in present time arrives, abides on him. See, little baby gets born, comes into the world. all you know. <laughs> cute and bubbly and pink and, and all that. OK, and it's sweet and you just, you know, tender and your soul just kind of coos. Oh, that cute. Well, doctrinally, what do you do? Yeah, doctrinally, you, you're looking at a dead thing. You're looking at an unbeliever in Adam, object of God's wrath. But he's cute. Yeah, he's cute. Like little baby Lawson was just here last week, first time we had a chance to see him. Cute little kid. He needs a Savior. He needs to come to Christ. All right? Because the... Default by grace position. You're dead by grace. Thank God for it. Not because you deserved it. Not because you earned it. Not because you did anything. But your forefather Adam did. And you were in Adam. You're born under the abiding wrath of God. You want to be able to explain that. You want to, it's, and it's, it's, you're going to be at odds with this cosmos. You're going to be at odds with the philosophy of our age. The, the, the blank slate theology, philosophy that says that, you know, we're all just this innocent created blank kind of thing. Wrong. There's no blank slate. A blank slate is the empty mind that accepts the garbage called blank slate. I mean, you're born dark. You're born in Adam. You're born dead. In need of a savior. All right. Everything John said regarding this man is true all right well that sets the table then i told you it's a pretty short episode we um come to the end of john chapter 10 and we're all excited to look at john chapter 11 because ooh, look at that it's lazarus it's there's a neat you know resurrection in this chapter and all this doctrine in this chapter well we're not going to get there for a while uh, in fact the resurrection of lazarus is not until episode 26 so we have um, six events we have to cover, all from the Gospel of Luke first. So uh, we've enjoyed this uh, interlude here in John chapter 10. When we come back next week, we will uh, be in Luke 13. And uh, episode 20 is the uh, last bit of Luke 13. And then Luke 14 gives us two more episodes. Luke 15 gives us an episode. Ooh, that's Prodigal Son, too. And we got that coming up. That's going to be a blessing. Then... Um, Episode 24 comes out of Luke 16, Rich Man and Lazarus, and the story of what I was talking about earlier with paradise and, and torments on opposite sides of the, the gulf there in uh, the abyss in, uh, in Sheol. Episode 25 comes from Luke 17, uh, and then 
then we'll be ready for uh, the resurrection of Lazarus in John chapter 11. So a little bit to go and then, uh, wow, yeah, we're, I'd say we're about halfway, halfway through the Judean ministry and getting ready for the, uh, the crucifixion week, the passion week, which uh, will be a study all on its own by the time we get that far. All right. Thank you, Father, for this truth. Thank you for this day. Thank you for all of the ways that you patiently guide us and teach us and develop a little bit here, a little bit there. Father, uh, I pray that each one of us will be uh, equipped and trained and motivated to be able to uh, proclaim the testimony of the baptizer concerning Christ to this lost and dying world. Uh, I pray that our CEF evangelists will uh, have fruitful ministry in their fields of service uh, coming up here, Father. And uh, I'm just so excited to think of all the ways that that uh, you're using the believers of this congregation, Father. You're equipping us, you're preparing us, you're training us, and you're using us, Father, in so many ways beyond all that we could ask or think. So we thank you for such things, uh, knowing that we get no, none of the credit, none of the glory. It's all your sons. It's all of what you're accomplishing. And, Father, we just celebrate and rejoice that you've uh, allowed us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen.